Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Maybe you've never really received that forgiveness that comes through asking Jesus to forgive your sins and to be your Lord and, and recognizing that the gospel is that Christ died for your sins, but that he rose again as well. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And all of that happens through putting your faith in him, trusting him to save you, and he will save you. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, in a message titled, The Empty Tomb. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Why would they include something like this in the story if they were making this story up? Because that's the alternative. That's what all of the other theories are saying, right? That this story was made up by these people. But nobody would make up a story that they wanted people to believe, try to convince everybody that this is true in first century Jerusalem and say that our first witnesses to this story are women, a bunch of women. Wouldn't have happened. And so the fact that women reported the empty tomb first is a strong case for things being the way that the gospels say they were. Another thing is the change. And again, this is another significant thing that we sometimes don't realize. The change from the day of worship among the Jews from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, which is Sunday. For us, it's Sunday. Now, we gather predominantly, the church does, primarily as our main gathering service on the first day of the week, Sundays. This has been happening for 2,000 years. But that originated with a handful of Jewish disciples. Now, the thought that a Jewish person would just decide after 1,500 years of history, you know, we're not going to worship on the Sabbath anymore. We're going to actually start worshiping on the first day of the week. Never would have happened. Never has happened. You could never get a Jew to alter the day of worship unless something of some extraordinary magnitude happened. And it did. Why do we worship on the first day of the week? Because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that is a, an evidence, I believe, in support. And then we have the post-resurrection appearances. And this is the funny thing, because the skeptics, the critics, they seem to overlook all of these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Now, when we read in the gospel accounts of the resurrection, it, we, we're not just reading like, like hearsay, like, hey, we heard that the tomb was empty. We heard that there was a resurrection. Hallelujah, Jesus rose from the dead. Go out and tell everybody that's what happened. That's not how it went, was it? The Jesus who rose from the dead appeared to people. He spoke with them. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, the first person. And he told her to go tell the other disciples. And then he appeared and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great chapter on the resurrection, Paul gives a list of the people that Jesus appeared to. He appeared to, he appeared to the apostles. He appeared to Peter. 
he appeared personally to James, Paul tells us. And of course, he appeared to Paul. But in that list, Paul says that Jesus on one occasion after the resurrection, remember there were 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. During that 40-day period, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. So there was a gathering of, of over 500 people and Jesus appeared to him. And then Paul said this. He said that the majority of those people were still alive at the time that he wrote that. He said, a few have died, but the majority are still alive. So in Paul's time, you could go and interview from among those 500 people, people that actually had seen the resurrected Christ. So we have all of these appearances of Jesus to all of these different numbers of people. Then, this is number seven, the unexpected nature of the bodily resurrection. And you see, this is another thing that sometimes is lost on us a little bit. The Jewish understanding of resurrection was that there would be a collective resurrection of the people of God at the end of the age. Nobody thought ever that there would be the resurrection of one single individual. That was completely unheard of in Jewish thought. So actually in, in John chapter 11, Martha expressed the Jewish belief. When Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus had died, and Jesus said to Martha, you know, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know my brother will rise again on the last day, at the great resurrection on the last day. Every Jew knew that and believed that. No Jew thought of the resurrection being a singular individual resurrection. So there was no expectation that Jesus would rise, there was no Jewish expectation that, the, well, of course, there was no Jewish expectation the Messiah would die, let alone rise. So this, again, is one of those amazing things. Now, we talked earlier about the spirit theory that Jesus didn't really bodily rise, just his spirit rose. But you see, another problem with that is that the word resurrection it can't even apply to a spiritual resurrection because the Greek word means to stand again. And it applies to the body, the body standing again, coming up out of the grave. So the unexpected nature of the bodily resurrection, three more things really quickly. The conversion of two skeptics. Jesus had uh, one of his brothers was named James. And, of course, Joseph and Mary had other children, and James was one of them. And James was a skeptic. James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah during the, the lifetime of Jesus before his, his crucifixion and resurrection. He was a skeptic. And it was after Jesus rose from the dead that it, Paul tells us that he appeared specifically to James. And then James believed and James became the leader of the early Jerusalem church but then there was another skeptic that he appeared to and this skeptic was converted and you remember him his name was Saul of Tarsus and Saul wasn't a passive skeptic he was a he was a, an activist against 
those who believed in Jesus. And he persecuted them. He had them cast into prison. He said he even cast his vote for them to be put to death. And he was in a rage. And he was traveling from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus because he heard there were people believing in Jesus there and he was going to arrest them. The high priest gave him authority and he's going to come back and he's going to prosecute them in Jerusalem. But remember, it was on the road to Damascus that the greatest antagonist of the time against the faith met the risen Savior and became the greatest protagonist of the faith. And so that's a powerful evidence. And then there is the accepted character and claims of Jesus. This is interesting to me because, you know, even the most progressive or liberal or however you want to define it, even those who, they reject the resurrection, they reject the biblical account, they don't believe in the Bible as the authoritative word of God. Ironically, interestingly, many of them will still acknowledge the extraordinary character of Jesus. So it's sort of undisputed. Even amongst atheists, they'll say, well, Jesus was fine. He was a good man. But the problem is, that's not what the New Testament says about him. He was certainly a good man, but he was much more than that. And so this has been accepted even amongst skeptics, his character and his claims. And then finally, the last one that I want to mention here is the reliability of the eyewitness documents that record the events, and that would be the reliability of the New Testament. So the the New Testament is a, like much of Scripture, it's a historical record, and it's an accurate, it's a verifiable historical record. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament so far exceeds the manuscript evidence for any other written work from antiquity. So in a university today, if you go to a university and you study any kind of you know, ancient culture or civilization or just do a history of, if you want to do a history of the Greeks or the Romans or whatever, they're going to try to get as close back to the time as they can and they're going to use the, the ancient sources that they have but they're extremely limited in their sources. If you took the 10 best sourced ancient historical types of things and you compiled everything together, you would have about 3,300 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts to support. This is for like 10 events or 10 you know, people mixed in with that or events mixed in with that. These are the things that you study in a university. This is, you know, you're going to go get your history degree or whatever. You're going to study this. And no professor is going to cast doubt on the validity of this. They're going to assure you that we know that this happened. The New Testament alone has 5,600 Greek manuscripts not to mention translations and codices and all of these different other things. And when you put the number together, if you include the Old Testament as well, you have over 60,000 sources. If you just leave it to the New Testament, you have over 25,000 sources. So if we have 
this limited number of sources for all of these other events from antiquity, but nobody questions the validity of them because, hey, we've got these manuscripts right here. This is what happened. You would think when you've got the kind of evidence for the New Testament that so far exceeds all of that, people would say, well, man, the evidence is right here. Of course, they don't because there's a bias against it, but this is one of the strong evidences that these reports are accurate. There's evidences. We know these things happened, and therefore we can conclude this. So when we read Mark's account, or Matthew's, or Luke's, or John's, we can say with confidence, this happened. Now, I'm not going to even go into detail, but this doesn't even... There are other things that we could look at. One of the main evidences is the millions of changed lives throughout history. So, but this brings us back around to where we started. The truth of the resurrection, it has application to me and to you and to everybody. So again, like C.S. Lewis said, if this really happened, then it is of the ultimate importance and that's right because the things that Jesus claimed he made these claims that they were universally applicable Jesus never ever gave any hint that he was only speaking to a select small group of people a certain race of people or anything like that Jesus spoke universally he's speaking to all humanity and so, since the resurrection is true, then it's also true that there is a God. It's also true that Jesus is God the Son. It's also true that the Bible is true. It's also true that heaven and hell are a real place. And it's also true that the destiny of every human being is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just remind you of a few things Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live again. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said that. Think about that for a moment. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, nobody before Jesus ever said anything like that. And the only people that have said it after him were echoing him, and usually they're crazy people that are doing that, but, you know, I can't think of a sane person that's ever said anything like that. But not only did Jesus say that, because conceivably somebody could say it, doesn't make it true, but Jesus didn't just say it, Jesus gave evidence. Because when he said these words, he said them to Martha, the sister of Lazarus who had died and was in a tomb and had been there for four days. And Jesus comes and now Martha is upset. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said, Martha, your brother is going to live. And I already referred to what she said. I know he's going to live at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, Martha, I am the resurrection. That was the context for these words. 
I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus made that claim. Jesus also said something that I think many already know, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus claims to be the life. He claims to be the way to God. And again, the question comes back, well, is the, is the claim valid? Well, based on everything we've seen, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that claim is, it is valid. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, Paul put it this way. Paul was there in Athens, in Greece, he was there at the place called the Areopagus, and he was there before the philosophers of the day. And he began to preach the gospel to them. And he said this, he said, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's the evidence that God has given to the world that there is a judgment day and that there is a judge. And that judge is the one man in history that was raised from the dead. And of course, that man was Jesus Christ. And so every person has to reckon with this claim. And every person's eternal destiny hinges on their acceptance or rejection of the resurrection of Christ. If you believe it, if you receive it, then as the next few verses say, Go into the world to preach the gospel to everyone. Those that believe and are baptized will be saved. Those who do not believe will be condemned. And just as sure as the resurrection itself is true, these words are true as well. But we can put our faith in Christ. And perhaps you're with us today and maybe you've not put personal faith in Christ. Maybe you've never really received that forgiveness that comes through asking Jesus to forgive your sins and to be your Lord and, and recognizing that the gospel is that Christ died for your sins, but that he rose again as well. But he rose again so we can have life. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And all of that happens through putting your faith in him, believing in him, trusting him to save you, and he will save you. But he won't save you apart from your asking him to save you. We have to ask him to save us. But if you haven't done that, please do that today. I urge you. But I, I want to say also to those who have done that, I want to just remind you of, there are many things that we could go into on this, but I, I just want to remind you of the glory of this truth of the resurrection for us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus. Because this means, most simply, it means that death is not the end. 
death is not the end of life. Death is, is, as we know it, it is the end of our physical life. At least this manifestation of our physical life. But we transition from this life into that life that is everlasting. But let me read to you from Paul's words to the Corinthians. We'll close with this. He said, the first man, Adam, was of the earth made of dust. The second man, Jesus, is the Lord from heaven. As was the man made of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And here it is. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Wow, that's it. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, you and I, we bear the image of the man of dust, Adam. We are the descendants of Adam. And we bear that image. But for those who put their trust in Christ, we will also one day bear the image of the heavenly man. And, and it's what Paul is saying is, is, as sure as you've borne the image of the earthly man, the man of dust, you will bear the image of the heavenly man. See, God has a promise. And the resurrection of Jesus, here's the amazing thing. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits, Paul says, of those who rise from the dead. Guess what? Every believer in history who has died will rise again from the dead. Had a phone call the other day, a question from a lady. She's trying to figure out, as many people do, the dead in Christ rising first. What does all of that mean? And we said, well, you know, that's a reference to the body. The body's gonna rise first. She said, what? Are you telling me my body's gonna rise from the dead? And we said, yeah, that's what we're telling you. And she said, hallelujah. That's amazing. I've never heard that before. Isn't that amazing? Those who have trusted Christ are going to rise from the dead. We're going to bear the image of the heavenly man. And the resurrection means that. And, and Daniel put it this way, and we'll I'll really close with this. Actually, the angel spoke to Daniel, and he said, Daniel, go your way. You're going to rest, and at the end of the days, you will awake. For those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Wow, what a picture. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and eternal contempt. But that's the promise. Those who sleep in the dust are going to awake. And those who put their trust in Jesus to everlasting life, it's that simple. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the resurrection to life for all those who
month of September, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled A London Sparrow, the inspiring and true story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson. Everyone loves a story of an unlikely person overcoming insurmountable odds. And as Christians, we all want to be used by God in great ways. The story of Gladys Allward is the story of both. A woman who was rejected by the China Inland Mission due to being unfit and uneducated, but used greatly by God to reach the lost in China. A London Sparrow chronicles the Christ-led adventure of Gladys Allward's perilous and solitary journey from London to China through a war zone and prison. Be inspired by what God can do through a life that is surrendered to Him. We encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order a London Sparrow, the inspiring and true story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.